Hello, and welcome to the On-Premise IT Podcast, the only podcast that dares to be both on topic and on location. My name is Tom Hollingsworth, and I'm a part of Gestalt IT. And each episode, we bring you the perspectives of a group of IT luminaries, experts in their field, debating a topic or a premise, if you will. I'd like to take a moment for each of our guests today to introduce themselves before we jump into the premise for today's episode, starting with John. Uh, John Kilpatrick, network architect and engineer. You can find me on Twitter at HyperGeekWiFi. Vince Shuley, I'm a consultant and network architect, and you can find me on Twitter at Shuley22. Uh, Jody Lemoyne, independent consultant and network architect. You can find me on Twitter at GhostInTheNet and on Mastodon at GhostInTheNet at hackyderm.io. All right, well, thank you all for joining us today. Let's jump into the premise for this episode. We build things, right? It's what engineers do. We have a lot of great, successful things that we've put together, but nothing is the same twice. Lightning doesn't strike the same place twice, and neither does our design skill replicate effectively. We affectionately refer to some of these things as snowflakes, beautiful and unique, no two are the same, but boy, wouldn't it be great if they were, because automation really doesn't like it when things are different, or worse, just different enough that things are gonna require a lot more work to make some script operate in a different environment. And man, it would be so much easier if we would just stop building snowflakes. All right, guests, let's talk about this for a minute. Why do we keep building snowflakes? because no large network is a green field. <laughs> yes, the concept of a green field is a fantasy that people keep trying to sell me. I have yet to see one. Everything is a brownfield. There's technical debt everywhere. Yep, and most large networks evolve from small networks. Small businesses become medium businesses, become large businesses with all the baggage that goes with it. Automation is a large business thing sometimes a medium business thing, and almost never a small business thing. Okay. It's an interesting perspective. Why is automation not a small business thing? You would think that it would be very useful for a group that has very little IT support. Mostly because the very little IT support is too busy putting out the fires to build the automation. It's fair. But wouldn't automation help them put out some of those fires? Sure it would, if they had the time to build it. It's a catch-22. It's not even always about time. Sometimes it's expertise. I don't have the skills to, For sure. to do that. Or if I do have the skills, then I you know, don't have the time. So it's kind of that same sort of thing. So if I'm good at automation, I might not be good at networking. If I'm good at networking, I might not be good at writing Python, and yep. then I'm stuck again. And my manager's priorities are not me making my job easier. Oh, it's getting your job done. Fair, mm -hmm. John. I would say we we all work. You know, you if you work for a business, then your function is to enable whatever that business needs. Depending on what your business does, you may be hit with being asked to build something that doesn't fit into any of your existing design patterns. If it happens often enough, you end up with more design patterns than you would like, and they look like snowflakes. And a design pattern that only used once may be the definition of a snowflake, but it may be because you had a problem to solve for the business, and this was the way that you had to solve it. It, it all kind of depends on what your, what your business does. Um, I do firmly believe, you know, network equipment, whatever, you know, 
cattle, not pets, right? These are, the, you know, I do believe in that mantra, but, you know, sometimes it's like, oh, well, I'm just building this small thing for this small lab for something we're going to do with a partner for a demo or a project, and yeah, it looks a little weird, but we're, you know, it's, it's because we're doing this technology with this partner that this is the only place we're going to do this technology, and so we had to do something a little different this time. These are challenges that I may have where I work because of the nature of the business. It's not something that would make sense if you're a company that's a cloud service provider and you're churning out data centers over and over again. So I think the, your ability to avoid snowflakes is highly dependent on what your business does and how it does it. And I think it's funny that we talk about this because one of the things that I've railed of, uh, back against for a number of years is this whole idea that hyperscale network providers have the best model of how to deploy things. And if you would just take your network and build it like Facebook builds their networks, then all of your problems would go away. And I'm notorious for chanting, your network is not Facebook, and that's okay. Because, that, like you said, I think it was Ben Siegelman at Lightstep during one of our Cloud Field Day events, he actually said something brilliant. He goes, you should never try to emulate Google engineers because we build tools to solve very specific problems that only we have. And if you try to adapt those tools into doing something in your environment, it's going to fail because we didn't build it for your environment. We built it for ours. So is part of our problem that we build these snowflakes and expect off-the-shelf components to work for that. Like we're like, oh, hey, that scripting language, that tool set, that framework, it should easily adapt to what I'm doing because I just built a network. And meanwhile, the framing, the scripting thing is like, oh yeah, we expect a minimum of 10,000 switches in this thing or it's not gonna work right. I would say that scale's a little extreme. It's gonna be more a case of, oh, well, I bought, what do you mean your your you know your professional network management platform doesn't support this really small niche open box switch vendor that I found because they were really cheap and I got them off of wish.com or whatever. Yeah. I, I ordered these directly from the ODM. They run a very customized version of Linux that I have played around with. How dare your system not support that? I want to go back to an earlier point that was made with uh, Putting in a one-time thing, it's temporary, it's for a demo. I mean, there's nothing as permanent as, as a, temporary a temporary solution. Fix. It's just, it's like, oh yeah, I put it in, it's good, we're good, we're gonna rip it out next week, and then oh, yeah. three years down the road, you're like, oh man, who put this in? It's we have business to critical. Deal with it. <laughs> well, the thing is, is and this, this is a discussion that frequently comes up, because we also have this, men, this mentality in IT of if it ain't broke, don't fix it. If I can squeak out another three months of this solution, yeah, it isn't pretty, but it works. Mm -hmm. And then three months becomes six months, becomes two years, becomes, does anybody know how that thing actually works? Uh-uh, we don't touch it, we just keep running. And so what happens then, somebody comes into this brownfield environment and goes, no, 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 there's a way better way to fix that. And they start taking the pieces apart, so the whole thing collapses down and on of itself. And now you're down, trying to figure out how to get back to a good state, and then you have to put together a crazy temporary solution to get everything, to get the lights back on. Which will in turn last forever. Right. Because it, it, it accomplishes the goals of the company and didn't cost a small fortune. Back to the cost thing, right? How many times has that repeatable solution been shot down because 
you needed more switches or you needed more routers to do it or you needed more equipment and then everybody's like, oh, well, you can just put it all in that one box and you don't have to worry about it. And then not realizing the operational cost that comes along with that because it's not a one-time upfront cost. It's a, I'll just go hire some more engineers. So I guess the question is, is IT just the, the, the organization part that is susceptible to this? Because when you look across what knowledge workers use, I mean, we don't see 14 different office suites being used on laptops. We don't see 27 different accounting packages being installed across the various divisions of our company trying to figure out how to make them all work. And like, if you went to somebody and they're like, oh yeah, we have these eight accounting programs that all need to be able to talk to each other. Like the software engineers would be like, no, you're gonna pick one and you're gonna use that one. And if it doesn't do everything you needed to do, then that's not the right one. And we're gonna keep investigating until we find it. Is it because part of the reason is that IT has the mentality of, by God, I'm gonna make this work? No, I would say it's because the things that we use to deliver the network are invisible to the user. They don't see it. Like accounting packages, office packages, all of that, those all have a direct user face. They see it. It's got an interface. Whether we use you know, some switch that we bought off of Alibaba or we're using the top end Cisco's or Junipers, they don't see that. It, the network just works. The packets just flow. They get where they want to go, and that's all they care about. I would say that we also have a challenge of, depending on the nature of your business, it can be really hard sometimes to justify doing things, quote unquote, the right way if it's difficult to draw a line between network downtime and revenue impact. So one of the places I worked in the past was at Yahoo, a company that made money by serving ads. If an outage caused a dip in the line showing how many ads were served during a period of time, you had a you, you could just draw a line. This outage cost us this many thousands of dollars because these are the ad impressions and we didn't serve because Yahoo Mail was down or whatever. Not that I took Yahoo Mail down on my first two weeks there, but you know, things happen. So when you have those lines, then it gives you the financial data to go, this is why we need to fix this problem. I have not had that luxury anywhere else in my career where I could draw a strong financial line between, okay, we're gonna do it this way and it's not gonna, it's gonna be brittle and it's a hack because you don't wanna give me enough money to do it the right way. And then when it breaks and they, you know, when, when they say we accept the risk and then you the risk is realized because the thing breaks and then they're all upset, it's hard for you to go back to them and go, this risk failing cost you this much money. That's one thing that we're not very good at. So I'm going to uh, irritate some of our viewers here by making this following statement. It's part of the reason why we have so many weird snowflakes is because we rely too much on things like open source software. I can hear the hissing right now. So let me, let me develop that just a bit, a bit as you think about how you're gonna skewer me in your response. Um, we don't have the resources available to fix things. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna go out to the internet, we're gonna see who solved this problem some way. And you start looking up the solutions and they're all expensive. And then some guy's like, uh-uh, I downloaded this thing off of GitHub that does most of what you needed to do and all you gotta do is put it in and it works. And we do that and then it works. And maybe it's a company that has open sourced a piece of their software and said, if you make this work and you need these extra features, you can buy them from us, and maybe we select that solution, even though it's maybe not the best fit for what we need, but because it can grow with us when really it can't. And then we've 
painted ourselves into a corner because now we've solved the square, square peg in a round hole problem with a jigsaw, and now the, the peg doesn't quite fit anywhere. Well, let me flip it around and paint an even worse scenario. The company won't pay for the professional tool to do what you need, and there isn't really an open source solution. And so the answer is, well, our, or even worse, there's something that's close, but not right in the marketplace. But you're like, that's not right for us. We'll do it ourselves. Ooh. We'll develop a homegrown solution. And you've got this one guy who's a mad wizard, and he codes this thing, and there's not a single bit of documentation in it. And then he gets a job offer from some funky place, and he goes off to do that. And now you've got this business-critical tool that is not well-documented, is homegrown. You can't buy support for it. And it's oop, written it broke. in QBasic. Yep. Yeah. And, and all of these are illustrations of the fact that the smaller businesses and the ones that are too busy getting the job done don't document sufficiently. Whether they're using open source, homegrown, closed source, whatever design, it's this cobbled together thing. It's because we don't get bonus points when we write everything down. It's true. It takes away from our time doing the things that are visible. So there's actually an active discouragement to document what we're doing. Now that's the advantage to having a non-snowflake network, but as you said earlier with Google, they're solving problems that nobody else has. Even these hyperscaled networks are snowflake networks. Does the non-snowflake network actually exist? So maybe a better question to go along with that is, if everything is a snowflake, how are we able to build repeatable, predictable, policy-driven architectures on top of this swamp of dumpster fires. Slow migration. And even then, your automated policy net framework is going to be different from the, network, the next company's automated policy framework. But I've seen, I've seen solutions from people like, you know, back when Jeremy Schulman worked at Juniper, and you could use Puppet to deploy switch configurations. Mm -hmm. uh, we've seen it now with, you know, Terraform or what have you. I mean, uh, look at something relatively what I would consider to be advanced and modern, at least as of this recording, uh, Hedgehog deploying Sonic with Kubernetes and orchestration and things like that. That's pretty cutting edge. Mm -hmm. It's still a bunch of snowflakes. How are we able to do that? How are we able to take... Kubernetes and Sonic, things that I would consider to be core to advanced, you know, advanced modern networking, and interface that when I know that it shouldn't work. Well, we can say the greenfield doesn't exist. The greenfield exists. It's just never the whole network. You can build the greenfield alongside and interface it with what you have and slowly migrate and. Ultimately, if we want that network that's totally going to fit our business, that's kind of how we have to do it. We've got the brown field over here. We've got the green field over here. They talk to each other, and we slowly bring it all over until we can get rid of this. Almost like a pod-based deployment where I'm building pods of architecture and moving equipment or moving workloads into those new pods and then eventually decommissioning the old stuff. That's the idea. And what you call design, what you call architecture is just design patterns. You say, I've got, you know, I've identified this problem. This is the way we like to solve this particular problem. The problem could be just something as simple as I'm deploying X many racks of servers. And I, and then you go, okay, boom, that means you need, you need these Lego bricks. The idea is to break it down into Lego bricks. And if you've sort out how those Lego bricks work together, then 
maybe each individual deployment may look slightly different from each other, but if they're made out of the same Lego bricks, then everything will snap together, even if you're making something that is different from what you made the last time. And I think it's interesting that you bring up the fact that what we would consider to be architecture is really changing design methodologies, because we've seen that over a number of years, right? Original Ethernet was all a bus, unless you were running FIDI or Token Ring, in which case you were running a ring network. And then when hubs and switches became popular, now we have star topologies. Then companies like Cisco said, oh, no, 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 you have to have this three-tier model of modular pieces, because we have really fast core switches, but distributions, and eh, not so much. And now leaf spine is the thing, right? Clove fabrics. Like, we, we are constantly advancing a lot of these things, and it's forcing us to reevaluate how we build our networks, and in turn, making us look at our old stuff and go, well, that doesn't look right. So is part of this problem that technology continually marches on and forces us to re-examine what we've built, knowing that if we had to build it again today, it would look radically different? That should be part of your architectural practice, right, is to go, okay, well, we ran into the limit. We either have a new technology that we're deploying, or we've ran into the limits of our, you know, of our existing deployment. Okay, this is the new. This is the new standard. It's a version standard, and now this is version 1.1. It's different from 1.0, and that means that maybe there's something that a 1.1 pod can do that a 1.0 pod can't do. But it will always be evolving. And that goes back to Jody's point, right? You're you're building a new greenfield setup that looks different based off the new technology, and then you're moving your gear in. Um, but something that I think we've kind of beat around the bush around um, on is, you know, all this looks really good, and then we have the supply chain that comes and hits, and now it's like, oh, I have to build something that doesn't meet any of this because the only gear I can get is whatever, or, or everything I have is end of life, so I have to design it this way. I have to go you know, way back. Now I can't go 1.1 1, 1 .1 on my pod. I have to go 1.0. And, and, and you bring up the fact that, like, in your specific example, like, what if the equipment's not available? I'm going to take a malicious bent to it. What if that vendor pissed us off and we're not buying their stuff anymore? What if, what if the corporate direction is now we're no longer going to be installing Juniper switches, but we have to install Arista? And that messes everything up because the stuff that you used to use in your architecture diagrams is radically different, and you have to spend time skilling up on new technologies. Well, we were talking about automation, though, right? Right. So then the trick is to pick... So the thing that works the best in automation is when you pick an automation framework that has a platform-independent translation layer that then handles talking to your thing. And so, for example, currently using SaltStack, right? You know, so we have minions that'll talk to Cisco or talk to Arista, and as long as my templates are right, it'll do the right thing, and I don't have to worry that for some reason Cisco thought TW was a good way to call out a 25 gig Ethernet interface. Explain that to me. I don't get that. I don't get but that. I don't have to worry about it because that middle middle tier. Um, again, at a previous job, we had an ACL, um, ACL metal language that would, like, you define the ACLs in a database, and then it could spit out, you know, you know whatever, ASA, you know, SRX, whatever. It, once it knew the target platform, it built the ACLs for you appropriately. I didn't have to worry about that. It was in a metal language. Any good automation framework should include that abstraction so that vendor changes are painless, or as painless as possible. So in one of the... Big automation ones I like in service providers, um, 
watching ESNet and Chris and Nick when they go and they give their presentation on, hey, this is how we automate everything. And then you look at the actual software stack that they have to maintain to deploy their services, which are pretty standardized. And it's like, wow, how do I get all the people, if you're not a large enterprise, a large service provider, to be able to maintain that? Because I, you look at that slide and you're like, oh, there's like 20 things on there. And they all integrate together. Well, and this is something that I recently brought up in an episode of Conversations on the Gestalt IT YouTube channel, is this idea that a SOAR, security orchestration and automated response, it literally is built to automate responses to threats, right? Except a properly built SOAR for a medium to large size enterprise requires a huge team to operate. And there's all that little glue that has to be built in these uh, interfaces have to be maintained and oh they rev the API again and forgot to document it well that's another three months of my life that I got to get everything figured out so is the problem that we're worried about building snowflakes when what we really should be worried about is making sure that the orchestration layer the overlay that we build to automate them is where we need to focus all of our efforts but we don't get there until we're a medium to large business in the first place so is this not a solvable problem by anybody who has less than 2,000 employees? Well, a large business by definition is 500 and up. So even if you're talking medium business, if you've got 10 people working on something, that's a 50th of your organization. I would say that the adoption of cloud technologies and the way some of that is coming out of the cloud and into on-premise networking, I think that's... I mean, we're not moving as fastly as anybody might like, but that's where it's going to lead because the availability of cloud technologies have allowed small businesses and small startups to get started doing things in a way that does scale if they need to scale later on. And those, as those technologies get more broadly adopted, then I think that's going to lead it to the point where, well, I don't really care who my vendor is. I don't need to worry about the middleware. You know, we started in Amazon and we moved it. We could move it on prem, we could do whatever we want because the tools are the same. Yeah. That one of the things that we've seen that has been a huge value is that consistent tooling that you get in an environment where consistent tooling is important, being backported down the ladder, if you will, and then being able to apply those tools to our specific scenarios gives us the kind of predictability and repeatability that honestly is one of the drivers for people going to the cloud anyway is that it's gonna, you know, when I tell it to deploy that worker, it's gonna deploy that worker the same way every time, no matter what, without having to grab the duct tape and piece it back together. Well, All right, so here's the question that I have for you. Obviously, we know that snowflakes are unavoidable. What is a way, one thing that you can tell the people uh, listening to this podcast, that you can build a better snowflake that is more likely to be able to be repeatable, easy to manage, and be able to be uh, deployed with some of this cloud tooling and things like that? Minimize your interfaces in the sense that uh, if, if you're going to go with a vendor's equipment, stick with that vendor's equipment so you have a single interface to it. It doesn't matter what the vendor is. If you've got a cloud, whether it's Azure, GCP, whatever, Stick with one so you have consistent interfaces to the whole thing because the more interfaces you have, you've got four different cloud providers, you've got three different vendors' equipment in there, you've got that many more things that you have to deal with and that is a recipe for custom solutions. 
to have well-defined business use cases of what you're actually trying to to get after, right? You know, it's a service provider. A lot of people sell layer two VPNs. Like, don't go and start selling something else because it, you know, well, define that. Say here, here's what I offer, and then you're less likely to go build a snowflake. And if you are going to build one, build that back into your business model to say now this is a service I, I offer, and I can go and and sell in a repeatable way. Document what you do, and if you can make your documentation be part of an intent store, that's the way to go. If your documentation is a, a, a wiki, okay. If your documentation is a netbox instance that actually is something where someone else can go, oh, I can code against that, then you're already setting yourself up for being able to automate once you need to scale. I think the solution, honestly, is to realize that the problem isn't the snowflake. We're doing our job. We're building the correct implementation of the intent of the business, and we're expressing it through a combination of hardware and software. And what we're so worried about, this is difficult and you know hard to manage, isn't the real solution to our problem. If we want to use things like automation and orchestration, what we need to do is have the right policy at the top driving how those things are interacted and then finding a proper software platform that allows us to do that integration work. And yeah, it's not going to be easy. But if you get really good at skilling up on how to use those things above it in that overlay to drive how you want things to be done, I think you'll find out that you're going to spend a lot less time worrying about snowflakes and a lot more time building snowmen. That'll just about do it for this episode of the Gestalt IT on-premise IT podcast. We want to thank everyone out there for joining us. We do have a new episode every couple of weeks. Uh, you can find that on our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash video. You can also subscribe by going to our uh, website, gestaltit.com slash podcast. That's the RSS feed that you can uh, subscribe to when a new episode gets released. Uh, we love to hear your ideas for premises that we can use in these podcasts. So if you want to check that out, you can head over to Twitter. We're at on-premise IT, and yes, we are using that term correctly. We should be back in a couple of weeks with another great episode. Until then, thanks for watching and tuning in. We'll see you soon.